Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Terrence Malick's latest film, To the Wonder, stars Ben Affleck, Rachel McAdams, and Javier Bardem. It's available on demand this Friday, the same day it's in theaters. Simon Killer also premieres Friday, available on demand during its theatrical run. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. This podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. And this podcast is also brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account... Go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code FILM4. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I am Matt Singer. And coming up on this episode, we explore the mean streets of San Francisco as well as some unnamed urban fantasy location located somewhere between the 1950s and the 1980s, as we talk about Walter Hill's 48 Hours and Streets of Fire. But before that, we'll bring you Q Shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various VOD and streaming sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by 48 Hours, we thought we'd get a lovable convict out of jail for the weekend to join us for some color commentary and uncomfortably out-of-date racial humor. <laughs> but the rare podcast guest spot weekend pass requires a surprising amount of paperwork. Yeah, Who yeah. would have thought? So instead, we're just going to talk about Eddie Murphy. Yeah, very little paperwork required <laughs> to talk about Eddie Murphy, <laughs> yes. I Um, But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD and give you a rundown of other notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? Boy, it's a busy week for VOD, Allison. Uh, Get ready. You're going to have to clear your calendar for this one. Let's start with the the biggin. Although there's actually a couple biggins. Mm. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's latest film, Django Unchained. Yep, it's available on VOD starting on April 16th. And uh, I don't know how much we need to say. I think people who are listening to this podcast are probably pretty familiar. I mean, they, they probably, they've heard of it, I they've think. They've heard of it if they haven't seen it. <laughs> so let's do this, Allison. Yes. Where does Django rank in the Quentin Tarantino pantheon? Where would you place it amongst the greats? Some of the best films of the last couple of decades... Where does Django go in that list of Tarantino films? It was not my favorite Tarantino film. Okay. I would put it under Inglorious Bastards, which is probably fifth on my list. Okay, so what do you have? You have Pulp Fiction probably Pulp near Fiction, the top. Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs. Jackie um, Brown up Jackie there Brown, somewhere. And then I'd say... We're just going to list them in order, yes, I guess. Kill, Kill, Kill Bill. Bill. We'll just say Kill Bills. The Kill, Kill Bills. Bills. Okay, so it wasn't one of your favorites. Yeah. What was it? What was it missing? Did you think? I just felt like it felt like a a rough cut to me. It mm. just seemed, you know, I, no one is going to tell Quentin Tarantino, "Hey, maybe you could trim this down and tighten this up a bit." You know, he's Quentin Tarantino, right? Right. So, I, and I did feel watching it like it just sprawled forever, right? And yeah. Lost his longtime editor Sally Mankey right. before this film was made, and I think perhaps it's you know it's speculation, but one could speculate that perhaps without her. There was something missing in the editing process. I did feel the same way that you did, that it, it's not his best movie. It is a little long. 
the last act sort of repetitive in some ways. Um, but I, I liked it. I still enjoyed it. I think it's still worth seeing for sure. I mean, I feel like any Tarantino movie is an event. And I also think, you know, as much as it was a popcorn movie, very much so, uh, there's a life read a lot of great criticism and thought. People really like dug into the movie and the racial politics and the gender politics of it and uh, its connection to the previous movies and representation. There's a lot going on in what was ostensibly like, you know, a cutesy kind of combo of black exploitation and spaghetti western. There was more to it beneath the surface. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, sometimes I think that some of the discussions it sparked were maybe more thought out than the themes were in the movie, but I enjoyed them a lot. Interesting. And I did think that, like, you know, no one does kind of throw away incredibly enjoyable scenes like Quentin Tarantino and just in terms of, like, like scenes set to certain music cues or just, like, like the go- the scene with the kind of proto-clan. Uh, right. It's hilarious. Oh, God. So good. Amazing. It's so good. Amazing scene. Yeah. Amazing so, scene. Christoph Waltz, great again. Great Won again. another Oscar working yes. with Tarantino. And, I, I mean... I thought he was great. I, I don't know. I thought he was terrific. Deserve. There was other great people in that category right. this year, but wow, he was great. Hello, you poor devils. Is there one amongst you who was formerly a resident of the Karukan Plantation? I'm from the Karukan Plantation. Who said that? What's your name? Django. Then you're exactly the one I'm looking for. So, it's still a good movie. If you haven't seen it yet, it's a good time to catch up with it. It's Django Unchained. It's available on VOD on April 16th. And we've got two more pretty big titles to mention here. Both are going to be available starting on April 12th. The first uh, is a movie from a... Could you say, would you say like a legacy director? He's a famous director's son who's now in the directing game himself. His name is Brandon Cronenberg. He's the son of Jerry Lewis. No, wait, I'm sorry, that's not right. <laughs> He's the son of David Cronenberg, who's one of my all time favorite filmmakers. Yes, me too. A- and the film is entitled Antiviral. I haven't seen it yet, Allison. Have you seen it yet? I have not, but I'm assuming, like his father, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a lighthearted it's a rock, light-hearted, romantic with whimsy comedy, and charm. Yes. Some musical numbers, perhaps. And let me give you the the plot description, which I'm sure is full of whimsy and charm as well. After becoming infected with, oh, there goes the whimsy and charm uh, right there. Three words. It's all it took. Infected with love? No, infected <laughs> with the virus that killed superstar Hannah Geist. Ah, uh, yeah. Sid March must unravel the mystery surrounding her death in order to save his own life. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how much it's like a David Cronenberg movie, but the film has played a ton of festivals. It's had a very strong festival run. I think it premiered at Cannes in the Uncertain Regard category, which is sort of like the area of Cannes that's devoted to kind of younger, uh, less well-known directors. It played Toronto. It played Fantastic Fest. It played Sitges. So it's played the world. It got a lot of good reviews. I'm I'm going to see it at some point. Uh, I'm hoping to see it sooner rather than later. So that's antiviral available on April 12th. And then you mentioned it right at the very top of the show, Allison. It's a big, huge matzo ball for the the film world. It's the new Terrence Malick movie. The suddenly prolific Terrence Malick. He has yes. a new movie out. It's called To the Wonder. It's available on April 12th. And I'm not. Why would I even read a plot description of a Terrence <laughs> Malick movie? Uh, ben Affleck is in it. I know that much. Uh, I believe he rubs his hands over wheat thistles 
And that's about 40 minutes of it. And then the rest of it is him talking and looking at the sun. I hear they don't even. And get I to, give it I 15 out of 10 stars, Allison. <laughs> I hear they don't get to talk that much anyway in this one. There's this l- one. even even for a Malik movie. Uh, there's I, not I, much I talking. I remember. I have not seen it yet either. This one did not get a great reception. Actually, right? Very mixed. Very yeah. mixed. Although I've I've seen recently as it's starting to come out and we're starting to see more of the you know local critics and just you know your average critics seeing it. I'm actually starting to see that come up a little bit. It seems like. People were really harsh. Uh, I think it premiered at Toronto, and it seems like people were very harsh there. But it seems like uh, there's starting to be a uh, maybe a backlash to the – is it backlash? The, fr- if it, the front lash? The front the lash. Front, I don't know. Correct. <laughs> well, whatever it's called, and even if I'm kind of uh, joking and taking, uh, taking, a, uh, taking the piss out of Terrence Malick, I guess you would say, uh, I'm going to still see it. It's an event. It's still worth seeing. It's a Terrence Malick movie. It's always worth seeing. And uh, it's called To the Wonder, and it is available on April 12th. Allison, we're very pleased to have Shutterstock.com as a new sponsor this week on Filmspotting SVU. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for your website, ad, multimedia presentation, or other type of film project. You can choose from over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. They have clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in HD. And Shutterstock sources video clips from around the world and puts them at your fingertips. They have contributors that are professional filmmakers. They review all the videos to make sure they're of good enough content and quality before adding them to the library. And they add 10,000 video clips each week. So whenever you visit, you're going to find something new. Shutterstock can give you the assets you need to bring your creative project to the next level, and they make it very easy. They have sophisticated tools so you can search and drill down by category, clip resolution, contributor, or uh, other other categories. And you can find the video assets you're looking for and save them to a clip box, then access your selections anytime and share them with other members on your team. Shutterstock's a complete offering with excellent customer service, uh, 24-hour support through the week, uh, and flexible pricing. You can actually choose between individual clips or video packs and you can download the clips in hd or save by getting them in standard definition and they have a huge image library of photos vectors icons and infographic templates you can try shutterstock today by signing up for a free account there's no credit card needed just start an account and start using shutterstock and save your video selections you find in your clip box if you decide to purchase use the offer code film for and new accounts will receive 30 percent off any package so that's shutterstock.com and for 30% off new accounts, use offer code FILM4, and we thank Shutterstock for their support. Eddie Murphy, incredible stand-up, amazing on Saturday Night Live, kind of a legend. Uh, you know, when it comes to music, questionable, maybe. You know, we could uh, we could discuss. <laughs> but, I, I don't think we should discuss anything. I think we should just listen to Party All the Time again. Let's play it! No. Yeah, no. Then let's not discuss. All right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, huge movie star, especially in his prime. There were really, was there anyone bigger? He was a unique figure. I mean, he became so famous so fast. And he was 
there aren't too many stand-up comics who attain that level not only of stardom but almost like rock stardom. You watch those you know stand-up movies he made, and first of all, there's not too many comics who have the stardom, the raw drawing power to to make a theatrical stand-up movie. And you just look at the way audiences reacted to him, and it is intense. It is feverish. It is like, you know, he is like a rock star walking around. And I mean, he was a handsome man. He had incredible charisma. He was an incredible performer. I don't know if there's been that many actors that we could think of that were just more charismatic at their in their prime at their best than Eddie Murphy. There was something... You oh, know, no, that, he was incandescent. Like, he, he really was really was. amazing. He yeah. really was. And that smile, which became such a trademark and almost a cliché... In the beginning, there's something almost kind of beautiful about it, isn't there? Like, yeah. that smile is like a thousand watts. It could power a New York City for a night or something on just the, the brilliance of that smile alone. And it did later become almost, a, you know, sad in a way because yeah. he would do it and it was so forced. You know, yeah. it was almost like he was, it was almost it was like, like the, ma- it was it like was the mask or the Joker or something <laughs> where it's a smile, but it's like a forced one. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're like, you can't always out. You just got to keep smiling. Like smile and fake it till you make it but in the beginning my lord what a what what a brilliant performer and i think one of the things i wanted to talk about and this is a nice segue into it uh is the fact that he got away with stuff because he was so charming i think looking back at these movies now and we're going to get to the picks but i think we're going to talk more generally about him and then kind of go through the picks a little more quickly this week because i think there's more interesting things to say about him in some cases than some of the movies but as a kid, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. I was born in 80. We're about the same age, Allison. And I don't know about you. My parents weren't the strictest about adult content, but they were pretty hands-on. I mean, I couldn't just watch anything. And actually, I mean, I remember not being allowed to watch Eddie Murphy movies, almost in general. Uh, I didn't see some of the movies we're going to talk about, including some of his most famous, most iconic, most played 80s movies until I was much older, until I was in high school or maybe even college when I went back and caught up with them. And in my house, it was like Eddie Murphy is a quote unquote like dirty comic, like he's edgy. He really is. And so there was, you know, you know, sexual humor and everything else. And so looking back at them now, I mean, I'm not it's interesting because, yes, he is edgy, but it's not in a like. I don't know. Is he pushing boundaries? Is he being edgy? Or is he just being kind of politically incorrect in a way that I've – it's almost unsavory now. Like his material in a lot of cases would not fly today. Oh, a lot of it. I mean, I can talk about it a bit because one of my picks coming up will be one of those stand-up movies you yeah. mentioned. But like they definitely – and, I, you know, it watching that, it was a little startling to me. Some of the jokes it is, made, right? where you're just like – like that it's not edgy in the way of like you're pushing sensibilities it's actually like edgy verging on like like some of the things flat out you said like that it's just offensive right yeah well it's funny because you know maybe this is just me but when i think of like edgy comedy i think of people who take what is sort of the like the the preconception of the audience and then turn it on its head make them rethink that i feel like sometimes it's almost like playing into the stereotypes that people already have about some of these minority groups or gay people is a very popular target for Eddie Murphy back in that time. And, you know, it'd be one thing if we were talking about a guy who was a stand-up comic in the 1950s. This is the early and then mid and then late 80s that he's making these jokes. It's not that long ago. And it's sort of shocking to me at times yeah. to, to hear some of that stuff. Well, especially, you know, as someone – he, like, loved Richard Pryor. And, right. you know, he, he really kind of uh, – 
took like saw himself as like following Richard Pryor's footsteps, but I don't think he has the kind of he doesn't he doesn't push especially in terms of race i don't think he pushes in the same way you know like there was a kind there was genuine edge to richard pryor in the way he approached race and i don't know i mean like eddie murphy does talk about race a lot but it is sometimes in that way of uh like the more traditional kind of it, like the way the Simpsons would make fun of race, you know, white guys drive like this. Like sometimes it's like a very kind of like a very kind of profane version of that. Right. You know, but like there are times like where I think that's actually the base of the joke that he's telling is like an extended, but and like very profane, but like kind of joke that comes down to that. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. and Richard Pryor was an incredible stand up, one of the greatest, if not the best of yeah, all time. Exactly. But, I but mean, Eddie Murphy is considered Eddie one Murphy of is the considered best one. Ups. But what I think the difference is, and, and just in my opinion, I, so you, somebody might totally disagree, is that I think just Murphy had the charisma and the and that star wattage to almost get away with material that was like that, that wasn't maybe as clever or smart or as sharp. He could just sell. He could sell anything, you know, which is a that is a gift that serves you well on Saturday Night Live almost more than any yes. other job. If you can sell bad jokes or if you can sell half-baked material that was written 20 minutes bef- between the dress rehearsal and the show, you're going to do well on that show. And he did well. And, and you know, we're, we're getting off on this foot where we're just kind of hammering the guy a lot already. And I think it's a little more nuanced than that. And I actually think – although this is really one of the first times I've done a lot of like serious like watching his movies and thinking about him. I do think Eddie Murphy is one of the most fascinating stars of like the last 25 years. Uh, be- and in part because he became like we said so big so fast. He came from Saturday Night Live. Really there's very little argument about this. You know, the original cast all leaves, Lorne Michael leaves. The show almost gets canceled. It's like literally on the verge of cancellation when this guy this, he's like 20 years old. He's like 20 years unbelievably young. He's only young. 52 now. He's only 52 now, and you think about how long he's been around. Yeah. I mean, he was so young, which may account for some of the jokes, too. You know, like when you're 21 years old, who among us doesn't tell tasteless, you know, jokes? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He just got to a point where he was so big that he could tell tasteless jokes in front of 10,000 people, and it becomes a different thing at that point, doesn't it? But he, he, he comes out of Saturday Night Live. He keeps the show afloat for several years. And then he immediately goes into these movies, which are all huge hits. And then there's this, like, we were saying this before we started recording, like, what happened to that Eddie Murphy, you know? What happened to the guy who made these edgy comedies? The dirt, even just, like, what happened to, like, the dirty comic Eddie Murphy? It's like, he got to this point where all he made are these incredibly creatively safe family movies. And... I mean, he's not a guy who does a lot of interviews, who talks a lot about his career or right, his process right. or any of these things. So you just – he's kind of this fascinating enigma. It's like it's like we know a little bit about his background as a kid growing up. We know a little bit about him on SNL. And then he seems to become really private and it's kind of hard to, to get a grip on Eddie Murphy, the artist. I mean he's a guy who wrote a lot of his movies, co-wrote a lot of his movies, produced a lot of his movies. You know, And Eddie Murphy production shows up on a lot of these movies we're going to talk about. He directed one of them that I think you're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. It's like, who is Eddie Murphy? Who is yeah. he as a guy? And are there any, before we get into the picks, are there any themes that you could pinpoint and say these are what his movies are about? No, no, definitely not. I mean, I think hmm. like, you know, when you say that like he was a guy who could tell anything, I think that that is maybe also what kind of explains the how his career kind of seems to kind of trail off in that way in like more recent years. Because it does, there is a sense like he just doesn't want to, to, try that hard you know to turn on that 
that kind of charisma to right. like in a lot of these movies you watch, especially like a lot of the family comedies, you know, you're like, he's not putting a lot of effort. Into and, it. and in fairness, I mean, and he's the, not the only guy in Hollywood who's no, phoning by, things in I, for I, a paycheck. But I, I, I in no means want to say he is like, probably he's one of many uh, comedians who has done uh, right. kind of rote family comedies. And even They're, in some of the more rote ones, his at, at times, again, his charm can, can at least make these things watchable if not you know memorable or entertaining you know and then once in a while he'll pull out the transcendent eddie murphy again we'll get flashes of it well we'll remember oh yeah and i was so disappointed i don't know about you when he didn't host the oscars you know it yes. almost happened and, and then, then the he brett pulled ratner out thing. after that whole brett yeah. ratner scandal where he made those comments ironic given that it's yes. eddie murphy we're talking about I would have loved to have seen that. And maybe someday it'll happen. I, I really hope it does. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. Well, I did have a couple of thoughts about, if not themes, then maybe just some things that recur throughout these movies and, and his work. But let's get into the movies and we can bring them up. Why don't you start with your first pick? All right. Well, my first pick is one of those two uh, stand-up films that he made. Okay. Uh, the first one is 1983's Delirious, which is not streaming on Netflix. We picked the one that was, which is Raw, Eddie Murphy Raw, 1987. Now, which outfit is he wearing right. in this so, one? So, Delirious, he's wearing the red leather suit. Red leather. Suit. And in and this one, Raw, he's, he's wearing purple. the purple, purple leather suit. Which yes. one do you think is a better look? I kind of like the red. I agree. Yeah. No, it's, that's the obvious. I mean, price. like you know, like leather suits look good on anyone. So uh, totally. You know, I'm wearing. A, I mean, I'm wearing one right now. I know, and I was just gonna say, you look great, and it feels very comfortable. I think so, especially for I sitting powdered, on the floor. I powdered, so it's very comfortable this <laughs> so time. Just, just to get into it, that's what you have to do. Yeah. But so, um, you know, this was his follow up to 1983's Delirious, which was a huge hit, um, and this is uh, directed by Robert Townsend. Um, and if, this one's shot in New York. It's shot in the an, an area of Madison Square Garden that I think they've kind of rearranged since then. It might be. I think it's the now called Forum. the Theater. Yeah, that's, that's what's called like the Theater at Madison Square Garden, or yeah, it might yeah. have a corporate name now that I don't even that know. I don't but, know. Yeah, yeah. It's but, like a theater around the back of Madison Square Garden. Yeah, but so he's in New York. Uh, you know, it starts off with uh, the kind of sketch involving him as a kid uh, performing a really dirty joke for his family, the mm -hmm. family get together and then it goes to like everyone on the street. And, you know, you mentioned how people react to him and just like how everyone on the street is like, just so excited to be going to see him. It's, it, it is very rock star ish, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and this, I, it is, it, it is like, it's often a very funny standup special. You know, there are some great classic jokes. I think that the joke he tells about, Italian Americans watching Rocky and then getting like all pumped up after that. Like the explanation is that it's why he got into a fight one night, right? They're like, um, but that it's like it is really it's a very funny joke. Like you know how he builds off of that about how, like, and really becomes just like an excuse for him to do uh, an impression, which is you know he does throughout the night. After they see Rocky, they come out the theater charge. They'd be like, all right, run all right, slide. People standing on line and sh Hey, Paisan, you going in to see Rocky right now? Yeah. Great fucking move. But, uh, you know, maybe more interesting is that he starts off the evening with uh, talking about how he was chastised by Bill Cosby for having such a profane, you know, for swearing so much. And he does this long Bill Cosby impression in which he's, you know, he's saying that it's like Bill Cosby on the phone for him, telling him off for, uh, 
flim flarm flim flam exactly yeah. and his son his son you know heard these words and now everything is terrible uh and it's you know and of course he eddie murphy aligns himself with richard pryor he says he called richard pryor and richard pryor is like you know, tell that Jello pudding eating guy. Like, uh, I'd like, I'd love to hear you just recite the joke. I'm sure that would cause no problems whatsoever yes, no, for anyone. Definitely not. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's really it's genuinely very funny. It's very good. Uh, unfortunately, he follows it up with like just a joke about uh, gay people in San Francisco. That's mm-hmm. just like it's not funny. It's like it's very offensive. Yeah. You know, and it contains many uses of the word faggot and. Uh, it's really kind of startling to hear, especially in this, con- you know, like in the context of today. Uh, and he, I mean, like this. So, would this, you recommend someone watch it in 2013? I mean, yes, because it's Eddie Murphy's one of his two stand-up specials. Mm-hmm. You know, like I it's I certainly an interesting document, if nothing else. I guess I don't know why he stopped doing stand-up. You know, like a lot of his career moves. I'm like, <laughs> we're kind of, we have to by. just guess. We just have to kind of guess at it. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, he was huge as a stand-up, and like. To watch this, you can understand why mm-hmm. he is like he is so charismatic, even you know, in these ridiculous jokes. Uh, and he does a great white guy voice. I love his white guy voice. In this. His white guy voice is is, is stellar, really, yes. no matter when he does it. <laughs> but yeah. you know, it is. I mean, it is true. Like watch, seeing that joke early on, where he's basically like. You know, the homosexual community was offended by what I said last time. Allow me to tell another offensive joke. Was like, mm, it was not pleasant. Mm. I still think, you know, maybe it is. It's worth watching, maybe even just for that, to be like in 1987, like that was still a joke you could tell this giant concert, right. you know, concert right. event, basically. In New York event. City, in of New all York places. City. Yeah, and people are laughing and cheering. Yeah. So um, that's Eddie Murphy Raw. It's a 1987 film. It is streaming on Netflix. Okay, well, let's pair that with. Uh, well, I mean, there's no other place to go here right now, but SNL. I mean, it's the place that uh, where he was discovered and became a star almost overnight. And I, I mean, I, I didn't have a. Mu- this has been a very b- busy week for us. I didn't have time to do all my research. I am a really big SNL fan, so some of this I I know. I've read all the oral histories and the books and everything like that, but I didn't have a chance to kind of go back and look at them. If I'm remembering correctly. He almost didn't get on the show, or the people in charge, because this is a time of like huge upheaval at SNL. Like I said, the original cast leaves, Lorne Michaels leaves, the woman who's hired to replace uh, uh, Lorne Michaels, uh, Gene Demanian, you know, is way over her head by all, almost all accounts, and it's a huge disaster. The show almost goes under, and as I recall, she actually didn't even want to hire Eddie Murphy. I think, ironically, the actor she wanted in that slot was Robert Townsend, the guy who directed yes, Delirious. Yes, it, it was, yeah. So, I mean, that's just a weird sort of quirk of fate, I suppose. But she had to be sort of, like, convinced th- to put him on. Just, you know, like, people around her convinced her. And, of course, what did she do after that? Eventually, she, t- you know, Took I discovered yes. I discovered Eddie Murphy. But th- that's the story, I think, as I recall it. And you'll, uh, I'm sure I'll be, you know, you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong out there, SVU listeners. But anyway, Eddie Murphy was on Saturday Night Live uh, from approx- approximately 1980 to 1984, uh, he had a really interesting tenure in that he became so big so fast. The audience loved him. Uh, he became essentially the star of the show in a way that very few people on that show have become stars in that way. I think Chevy Chase in the first season of Saturday Night Live was sort of the star of the show. Eddie Murphy became that big of a star, so much so that he's actually the only cast member who hosted Saturday Night Live while still being a cast member. The famous story is that his 48 hours co-star Nick Nick Nolte Nolte. was supposed to be on the show. He got 
sick. <laughs> he got sick, Allison. Yes. And uh, at the last minute, they needed a replacement, and so Eddie Murphy filled in and was the host. They're uh, like, he's already here. He's already here. He's he's in the same movie, so we might as well uh, put him out there as the host. So he became the host. I'm sure it caused absolutely no friction whatsoever amongst the cast as well. <laughs> Um, but that's actually, I believe, season number eight, episode nine, if you'd like to watch that one. And, I mean, the thing about Saturday Night Live on Netflix is every episode is there, but you don't know how much you're going to get. Some episodes you get almost the entire episode. Some episodes you literally get 20 minutes. You don't even get a monologue. You don't get any musical because guests. Issues. Because of Right, music rights for the most part. Uh, even in, as, like, in a spoof, you can't use some of these songs. So it, it varies. But you can go through and watch a lot of classic Eddie, Eddie Murphy stuff this way. Another great one that he is when he hosted season number 10, episode nine, he came back. It's the last time he was ever on the show. He had basically left the show, uh, came back. Uh, he was actually worried. He tells a monologue he, in his monologue. He talks about how he thought his career was over because he had done this terrible movie that bombed called best defense and then uh, begged to let them have him host again and by the time the hosting gig he got came around he had already made this little movie called beverly hills cop and he's already and, heard of it yeah yeah and when he's on the show talking and doing the monologue he's already like making fun of the show again and you could see he's back on top of the world and uh says kind of some you know a little bit not so nice things about the show but anyway <laughs> he never appeared on the show again after i did 48 hours in trading places all these scripts started coming from everywhere and i picked up a script called best defense there's a movie that sucked real bad. <laughs> at first, I wasn't going to do it because I read the script and I felt like I was an actor at first. But the money they gave me to do it, y'all would have did Best Defense too. Okay? <laughs> but they, I read the script at first and the script was terrible. I was like, what? How dare you give me a script like this? Oh, that much money? Let's go. <laughs> so I read the script for Best Defense. I went out and did Best Defense. Best Defense turned out to be the worst movie ever done in the history of anything. And all of a sudden, I wasn't that hot no more. So I called up the producer Saturday Night Live, and I go, um, you still got my dressing room? And he said, why don't you come back on the show and host the Christmas show? So I said, bet. So I signed the contract to host the Christmas show, and while I was waiting for Christmas to come, sitting in my house by myself, somebody brought a script for a movie called Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. I did Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop is a hit. All of a sudden, I'm an actor again. But it's too late to pull out, so I had to host the show. What you see on SNL, though, that is going to come up over and over again in his career is just that incredible dexterity with characters, with voices, with impressions. Uh, you mentioned the white guy voice, you know, and there's that classic, classic, it's not a sketch, it's actually a short film, uh, if we're being technical, <laughs> where I believe it's called White Like Me, you can find it on Hulu, uh, if you can't find the specific episode on, on Netflix, where he goes undercover in the white community, he gets his makeup done to look like a white person. Mr. White is his name. And he discovers all the great perks that come with being a white person. Just a really hilarious, funny, short film. But, you know, Buckwheat, Mr. Robinson, Gumby, Gumby yes. James Brown, the hot tub sketch. I mean, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Just these characters. And he would just toss them off like nothing. And he was so great at all of them. I mean, it's a really great showcase for what it's it's very evident what made Eddie Murphy a star on SNL. Let's put it that way. So if you're watching, uh, for Eddie Murphy, he's on seasons between 1980 and 1984, and all of Saturday Night Live is available on Netflix. 
So we've already talked about Trading Places and Beverly Hills Cop in earlier episodes. So right. you can find our discussions of those if you're interested. But that's why they're not present here. Yes. Not because we don't like them or don't think they're important. Two we're, of the best. Yes. I mean, Trading Places might be my favorite. And, yeah, and we're not talking yeah. about it here. But anyway, yes, those are available. They're on Netflix. So, so you should So we're going for some deep, deeper cuts maybe The deep here. cuts. Yeah. <laughs> not really. Not really. What, yes. Anyway, All right. Well, so what's our next pick? Our next pick is... I. I can't call it a good movie. In fact, I would say it's it's actually a pretty bad movie, but it is a really interesting one in the context of Eddie Murphy's career. It's the only movie he directed. It is 1989's Harlem Nights. It is streaming on Netflix. Uh, he made it after Coming to America, which is, you know, one of his biggest films. Yep. Uh, and he he wrote and directed it was nominated for two Razzie Awards for it. One, Worst Screenplay, um, served as, as executive producer as well. Uh, you know, and it's interesting in that it is the kind of, you know, sometimes when you're like, well, you're at the height of your power. and like, you can make whatever you want. Like, what is a dream movie you make? And this is kind of the movie he made. And um, there are several, like, maybe ill-advised things about it, including... It's a period piece. It's like a very awkward period piece about like um, running a club, a kind of after hours illegal club in Harlem and having a run in with like, a, you know, a corrupt cop and the mob who kind of want a, a piece of the action. But I'd say what's maybe most interesting about it, well, definitely most interesting about it is that Eddie Murphy wrote you know, this for him and Pryor, Richard Pryor. And he like actually writes himself in as a character who is like Richard Pryor's adopted son, basically huh. his protege. Interesting. Yeah. The movie starts off with like the Eddie Murphy's character as a kid coming in and like saving Pryor's character from uh, during a card game, like it goes or a, a dice game that goes wrong. And then uh, he takes the kid in and then they, they, you know, raises him and then they're partners in running this nightclub. And then like, you know, everything else that comes around from that is kind of just, I don't know, like there's a whole scene early on also where like Eddie Murphy gets in a fist fight with uh, a woman who's like the madam at the club. And he just like, they're, like weird slapstick and also uncomfortable because he's like punching a woman in the face <laughs> to like, like um like why why is why this do that yeah like why do this you know and there's a kind of a lot of that like the, i think the the film tonally is like a little odd danny aiello is in it uh arsenio hall is in it jasmine guy is in it and also red fox which is you know such a good cast uh, and like red fox like red fox richard pryor eddie murphy you know like i think like to kind of it's clearly trying to position you know this kind of stepping stones yes. in like african-american comedy yeah and yet the movie is just like a... Uh, doesn't live up to it the doesn't li live lineage. Up to, no, not yeah. at all. But it is an interesting curiosity if you can kind of, you know, slog through it. I think just for the idea, like for what it represents and for the, you know, it's like about Harlem and kind of about Harlem at this time. Mm -hmm. It's very ambitious. I knew it. I knew it. I knew that girl the other night had it for me. Look what I just got in the mail. Dear Mr. Quick, I couldn't help but acknowledge the obvious electric attraction between the two of us. Huh? Perhaps we should have dinner and talk. Please respond. Evergreen 20304 signed truly Miss Dominique LaRue. See? That girl coming by here the other night didn't have nothing to do with that cop that came by your apartment. She made Smalls bring in so she could meet me. She probably seen me up on the boulevard at the picture show and wanted to meet me ever since. Quick, I asked you not to mess with that woman. Sugar, she came after me. And besides, we don't even know if she's still down with Calhoun. At least I'm going to do is find out. I, I'd say um, worth a look, at least. And it's streaming on Netflix, so it's very easy to check out. Okay. Well, you already mentioned my next pick, which is Coming to America, the 1988 film directed by John Landis, who also directed uh, Eddie Murphy in, in Trading 
trading places and would direct him again in Beverly Hills Cop 3, which I don't think we'll be mentioning again on this show. <laughs> Allison, take a guess. How many times have I seen Coming to America? I think you already told me this. So well, then it'll be easy to guess. Zero. Correct. I, before this week, I was had shocked. never seen Stunt. Coming to America. Well, like I said, it's a, you know, it was an... You were not allowed. I was not you allowed. You actually had to ask... I was your forbidden. Parents, your parents gave you special permission, like, like Just last now. week. Yeah. Yeah, they were like, they, they okay, it. okay, man. They watched it first. <laughs> they said it was okay, and they cleared me to watch it this time. But uh, very appropriate, given that it is about a a, a guy who is... Still under the thumb of his parents <laughs> so many years. He, uh, Eddie Murphy plays Akeem, who is the heir to the throne of this uh, fictional African country named – do you remember, Allison? Do you remember the name? But, no? Zamunda uh, is, the, is the kingdom, and the king is James Earl Jones. Right. And the queen is – He's not even playing a character. Oh, he's, he's James he's Earl Jones. great. <laughs> and the queen is Madge Sinclair. And the idea is that he has been, you know, it's the classic, uh, the classic Prince story. He's been uh, given an arranged marriage. He's not interested in the woman that's been given to him. And so he convinces his father to let him have basically to sow his wild oats in America. But actually his plan, while he's supposedly doing that, is to find the love of his life, the woman he wants to marry. And so he goes with his, his friend, who's played by Arsenio Hall, and they go to... Where else would you find a qu- potential queen? Queens! They go to Queens, and it's very run down. This is New York City in 1988. It's not quite the New York City we live in right now. It's a different time, and there's all sorts of humor about that. Fascinating! Simi! Look at this! America is great indeed. Imagine a country so free, one can throw glass on the streets. You must be out of your goddamn mind. You crazy? You crazy? I am not crazy. Listen, real Americans. They get a job working at a fast food chain, which is called McDowell's, and looks (laughs) like McDonald's. Something but that happens, like, is this mild exaggeration of yes, something that still kind of still happens Still kind of in happens once in a while, yeah. Rip off, rip off uh, fast food chains. Anyway, so I had never seen this movie before. I watched it with my wife, who had seen it a million times with her father. Her father had different roles. <laughs> they watched this movie constantly. Although she said she did not re- remember there's a scene early, very early on where... I think I know the joke, yeah. Oh, well, it's not even a joke. It's like him in a tub with uh-huh. some naked women. Yeah, of course. You know, topless women. And she said, I've never seen this scene before. <laughs> so clearly she was watching something where it was just... It was edited right for TV, the yeah. It is a very funny movie. It's an amazing showcase for Eddie Murphy. It has that SNL character thing where there are scenes where in the barbershop mm-hmm. where famously he's playing a different character. And then later in the film, he's playing another. You know, he plays multiple characters on top of Akeem. Arsenio Hall actually does as well and does a fabulous job of it, too. You know, Arsenio Hall, not not really known as a you know like guy who plays characters, right. more known as like a, a talk show host. He's fantastic in this movie, too. They're all great, but it's funny you mentioned, you know, the the gender, the woman issues that you saw in Harlem Nights, because I was kind of thinking about them watching Coming to America. You know, on the one hand, it's a very like pro, you know, feminism movie in that he doesn't want a submissive, a submissive yeah, wife. Like he wants it. a wife who can think for herself, who's, you know, strong and independent. On the other hand. Like, every woman in this movie, except the one that he falls in love with, is, like, a really garish stereotype of, like, a, you know, submissive or weird or a kind of sexually promiscuous woman. 
And it, it's kind of a mixed signal. And until, like, on the one hand, it's like, I like the side of it where it's saying, yeah, I want to find a woman who's independent. On the other hand, almost all the representations of women, except the woman he falls in love with and his mother, who's also kind of strong and independent and, you know, has good qualities, not the most positive. So it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit mixed there. Uh, but, but I think overall, it is a really funny movie. I enjoyed it. I felt, I felt kind of bad that I'd never seen it before because I felt like I was missing. I did feel a little bit like I was missing out on the fun. It is a fun movie. And that's Coming to America, available on Netflix. Okay. My uh, last pick, just wanted to do basically something that was representative. Daddy Daycare. No. Metro. No. Showtime. No. And there are there were some that I hadn't seen that I was almost like, maybe I should watch The Adventures of Pluto Nash. <laughs> maybe maybe now is finally the time for me to watch Meet Dave. Didn't happen, huh? No, it did not happen. All right. What's yeah. your last pick? I thought, you know, what is it, like the most representative Eddie Murphy let's role? Let's just, you know what? Let's the last just, decade. Let's just throw them out. You and let's just throw it out there. What is it? It's Shrek. It's Shrek. Of course it's Shrek. Shrek. Yeah. Donkey. Do we have anything to add about Shrek? I mean, I think just that, like, you, you, as we were talking about yeah. this earlier, you're like, Donkey is in some ways, it sounds like someone doing an Eddie Murphy impression, which is true. It absolutely is. It is Eddie Murphy, like, turned up all the characteristics, just turned up so much to accommodate a world of cartoon characters, but also maybe just because maybe that's the point of Eddie Murphy, you know, like, well, that's what Eddie Murphy is doing now. He's doing an Eddie Murphy impression. Maybe. You know, and maybe. I think, you know, the Shrek movies are, I think, of varying quality. I think the first one's pretty good. The first one's know? great. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, Second but, one's okay. It's clearly like a giant, hugely successful franchise. Yes. And like Donkey is one of the, you know, maybe maybe more defining a character than Shrek himself in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, if also one that I find incredibly grating uh, <laughs> as the series goes along. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's this, it, it's kind of, it feels like it, Eddie Murphy using like all of his comic talents in this kind of like, well, like it's the funny sidekick. I'm just going to throw it all out there. Um, But you know, it is true. I feel like it is the most defining character he's played. Maybe the most defining role he's played in, in a decade Mm -hmm. of aside from dream girls and, you know, him stepping outside of his kind of usual, his comfort zone, which was good. Uh, I'd say Shrek is probably, the movie that's left the and the and the franchise that's left the biggest. Well, mark. yeah, there's probably no doubt about that. So, yeah. what is what is Shrek available on? Shrek is available on Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, and YouTube. All right, and very quickly because we're like we're not going to really talk about the movies, and then we've talked a lot about uh, movies. yeah, almost more than we normally do. Let's just throw out this last one: The Nutty Professor from 1996, probably the like the role before Donkey that was the last like signature Eddie Murphy role or roles once again, maybe the the like purest expression of the Eddie Murphy plays everyone yes, yes. Uh, aesthetic. And I do think that is kind of interesting because we've talked about how we don't really know who Eddie Murphy is. And so maybe that's who he is. Maybe he's the chameleon. Maybe he's the guy that's most comfortable not being himself, even though he did make so many of those, you know, he did stand up for a while and did two stand up movies, but maybe that's why he, st- he stopped because he was more comfortable in the makeup playing these crazy outlandish characters like Sherman Klump, the overweight professor who takes the thing and becomes the guy with the, you know, it's the nutty professor. But it, you know, it is an incredible showcase for Eddie Murphy, you know, and there, I, there, I can't think of too many other people who could have played it. I mean, obviously, Jerry Lewis made his own nutty professor, but to do it like this, where you're playing so many parts, I mean, is there anyone who could do it? Maybe I, Jim Carrey, maybe? Yeah, maybe, but I, you know... 
he really, Eddie Murphy really does a remarkable job of it. Yeah. He's one of a kind in that way. So if you haven't seen it, I mean, again, it's another pretty amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, I I mean, from a amazing movie. I just called The Night Professor an amazing (laughs) movie, Allison. It's been a long week. It's it's on the record. It's an amazing performance uh, on on a technical level. And it is a funny movie. It's a sweet movie. It's not an amazing movie. I want to make that very clear. Someone's going to somebody's going to make an audio clip of me saying that and it's going to come back Remarkable. to haunt me for a years. masterpiece. A masterpiece. So that's the nutty professor, the masterpiece. It's available on Netflix. We're happy to have Audible back as a sponsor this week. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. Uh, for our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. Matt, uh, do you have a recommended title this week? I do, and it's kind of a sad one for me. I mean, it seems only appropriate. We're recording this on Friday the 5th, and just yesterday we learned that Roger Ebert passed away. Mm-hmm. From cancer at the age of seventy, a huge figure in the in the film critic community. I know a, a huge influence on me. I don't know about you, Allison, but yes, you know, of course. I've you know I grew up basically worshiping the guy. It's a it's a big loss for me. I was pretty upset yesterday and spent a lot of yesterday and today writing about him and editing pieces about him and and reading other people's remembrances about him. It's sad, but I mean, you see how many lives he touched, and that's and that's pretty special. So, I mean, we're going to miss him. He was a great man, a great film critic. But uh, it seems only appropriate, given uh, the news, that the, the audiobook to recommend would be Life Itself, Roger Ebert's memoir. It's unabridged. It's narrated by Edward Herman. It's an amazing book. It sort of charts his entire life story, his time as a film critic, his time working with Gene Siskel on the, the classic show, and then afterwards, his his first battles with cancer and and everything that happened after that. He you know he lost his voice and had to sort of like reinvent himself as this kind of figure of the internet, where the internet became the voice he lost. And uh, it's a great book, as many of Ebert's books are. I have a whole shelf of Ebert books in my house, and I think they're all worth reading, but you know this one especially. Uh, and it is called, once again, Life Itself, and you can get that book for free as an audiobook on Audible. For Life Itself or another audiobook of your choice, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. That's audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. We ain't partners. We ain't brothers and we ain't friends. I'm putting you down and keeping you down until Gans is locked up or dead. And if Gans gets away, you're going to be sorry you ever met me. I'm already sorry. Nick Nolte is a cop. Eddie Murphy is a con. I can help you get Gans, but you got to get me out of here first. You're crazy. He pulled some strings. See how you need me a little more than you thought, huh, Mr. K? He pulled some scams. So where do you want to do it, honey? Want to hop up on the counter? Nah, we can go in this room over here next to the bathroom. Yeah, right. I'm dead serious. Come on, we're in the Let's go. They've got two killers to track down. Toss me that piece, and he won't waste him. They've got a kidnapping going down. I want the money. What you talking about? I want that Indian to snap her neck. They've got a fortune to hunt down. I want to know what's going on between you and Gans. Half a million dollars. And it's all coming down in 48 hours. You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before. Where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun. Where the beautiful Stay and see the show, it's really good The brutal I want Tom Cody And the brave all meet From now on, it's for real 
in Streets of Fire. Now it's time for the Listener's Choice Review, your pick this episode. It's a double feature of films directed by Walter Hill. Walter Hill, maybe best known for his work writing on Alien. And producing. And producing. But uh, in terms of directing, one of the two films that we're going to talk about is probably his best known. It's 48 Hours, 1982 buddy cop comedy. Maybe one of the earliest buddy cop comedies uh, set in San Francisco. It's uh, starring Nick Nolte as Jack Cates, a San Francisco cop, and Eddie Murphy in his big screen debut as Reggie Hammond, a convict that Jack gets out of jail for, yes, 48 hours, in order to uh, get help tracking down Albert Gans, who's played by James uh, Remar, who's basically, you know, a psychopath, who has escaped with the help of his Native American accomplice, Billy Bear. Uh, the other film we're going to talk about is Streets of Fire, which is a 1984 film that was conceived of during the making of 48 Hours, uh, slightly different film. It's a rock and roll fable. That's how it, how it was billed. Uh, kind of a combination of like retro 1950s look, but also very 80s at the same time. And it's set in this kind of unnamed, sort of rundown, almost futuristic sometimes town, uh, in which, to which Michael Paré, as a man named Tom Cody, returns. He's summoned by his sister, who runs a picturesque rundown diner, uh, to rescue his ex-girlfriend, Diane Lane, as Ellen Aim, who was kidnapped by bikers while doing a benefit concert, which, you know, just happened all the time in the 80s. Uh, the head of the biker gang, Willem Dafoe as Raven Shattuck, who wears a really Names. splendid, a really splendid pair of black vinyl overalls with no shirt that uh, I could talk about for hours by itself. But um, so, Matt, my question yes, to you yes. with these two yes. is, you know, Walter Hill has kind of famously always said that every film I've done is a Western. Mm. Which of these two films would you say feels maybe a little more Western to you? Oh, that's a great question. Well, actually, it's an easy answer for me. It's Streets of Fire. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it really does feel like a Western. The guy coming from into town and marshalling the law and saving the girl and making the streets safe. And not to spoil anything, but there's sort of like a right off into the sunset moment at the end of the film. And there is this idea that his character is almost outside of you know the law that he's there to protect. He doesn't really fit in. He's kind of a mook. He's this big, burly guy, and he's he's a rough-and-tumble dude, and... There's no place for him in civilized 1950s slash 1980s society, and he's going to need to mosey on down the road in his convertible classic at some point. Although, you know, watching these two movies together, and I had seen 48 Hours before, it was one Eddie Murphy movie I had seen before, uh, and watching it together with Streets of Fire, which I hadn't seen before, I did think the Michael Perret character and the Nick Nolte character had some similarities. Yeah, yeah, in the must, sort of gruff. The gruffness in the idea of this macho dude who is, you know, almost has, is, he sort of like, he is the law, but he, he's sort of outside the law. He's not, uh, he, he kind of operates by his own rules. They both drive kind of like old classic cars. Uh, Nolte's is beat up and, and, and uh, Michael Perez is kind of beautiful, but they're both similar looking and in style and in period. They felt like they had a kinship to me. They're yeah. very working class blue collar heroes. Yeah. Well, they also both have like a kind of friendly bickering sidekick, right? Very and true. And then they have like a very fiery relationship with their with a lady woman. love. That's yes. a great point too. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're right. They're 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 spiritual. Uh, cousins in that sense but in terms of which is a more of a western streets of fire in terms of which i think is a better movie 
without hesitation, without question, 48 Hours, yeah. I think, is a really, really good movie. Streets of Fire, I think, is interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. It's a very interesting attempt to do something different. It is unique. It is unusual. It's maybe the definition of indulgence. I mean, like, I it don't... It is, absolutely. And, I mean, like, that's part of what is part of maybe likable about it. Yeah, but it is, like, incredibly indulgent. Yeah, and I don't think all of it works. There are things that I like about it a lot, and we could talk about what doesn't. I mean, to me, 48 Hours is almost like, even though it's not a masterpiece, I think it is like an essential movie. I think this is a movie that really everyone should see because you said it's like one of the first buddy cop movies. I mean, it is the buddy cop movie. If it wasn't the first that inspired the genre, and I think you could make the case that it is, it is the – My er- favorite, Freebie and the Bean, preceded it. Okay. Yeah, yes. there were, you're right. So, there so are, that was kind of a proto-buddy. Yeah, there are proto-versions before yeah. this. This cemented every cliche to the point where – you could take this screenplay, and there are lines that I feel like I've heard coming out of the mouths of other characters. It's almost like every line has been recycled and reused to the point where you almost laugh at it now because it's such a cliche, even though it wasn't when they did it in this movie. This movie was so iconic. It defined this genre so much that it is almost now more of an unintentional comedy than an intentional comedy because it's been ripped off and recycled so many times. Yeah, you know, but at the same time, watching this, and I had not seen 48 Hours until this point, I, you know, I was pleasantly surprised by how, you know, restrained the performances mm-hmm. are. Like, you know, the buddy cop comedy has become so exaggerated that, you know, it's almost like, he's a kung fu expert fresh <laughs> from China. Like, and then he's been paired up Keep with talking. a... <laughs> Come on, don't you stop. Know, a British aristocrat. Yeah, here's $120 million. Thank Go you. make it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Who's also a dog? Um, <laughs> oh, here's $34 million. <laughs> Can you have it out by Christmas 2013? No problem. No problem. Um, but, you know, so, like, it's it's become so big. Like, yes. And, I, like, the kind of, like, the the kind of contentious friendly relationship yeah. has gotten so overblown to have them like they genuinely kind of like they hate each they other they hate each other it's amazing yeah. yeah and like i they the fist fight is fantastic Absolutely. they have like a lengthy like brutal fight it's edges at times towards like they live it's almost that long yes. it's sort of like the non-parody version of the big fight and they live in the yeah. alley they're even in an alley in one yeah. part of that fight but you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, it is. It's stripped down. It's lean. I mean, that's the Walter Hill influence. If people haven't seen a lot of Walter Hill movies, that's really something that he does. He makes these lean, unpretentious, 93-minute, gritty, often very masculine action movies that don't aspire to be too much, don't aspire to do too much, and don't go over the top and just kind of hit you in the gut. And that's what this movie does. And you're right. The buddy cop movie became something so big and so broad and so cliche. And here, even though these things became cliches, it's really there's a, there's a there is an edge to this movie. There's a rough edge. There's racism. There's violence. Smoking. There, the characters are constantly smoking and dirty, and you can almost like sm- like smelly too. I always like look at Nick Nolte and go, "You haven't showered. Yeah. You're smelly. You're gruff." You know, like Nick Nolte today is so like exaggeratedly gruff. Yeah. I mean, like but this even was like, in 1982. I know this was fairly early. Like he, I feel like he, he got still into sounds like a tracheotomy victim. I know he got into film like I think relatively kind of late later. Like you know he did a lot of stage in life. So this is yeah. like relatively early in his career, and he already looks so battered, like so battered. <laughs> he, I mean, but he, but he's perfect it's for that amazing. character. It works really well. He embodies this yeah. character so well. He he just pulls it off. I mean, he is this guy. But even the little touches are brilliant in terms of we already talked about his car and we compared it to streets of fire but just the way like he drives his car and he's never just like leisurely put it in drive and apply the brake and then look both ways just 
peels out no matter where he's parked. He's just – and that's who he is as a character, charging ahead, hard charging, doesn't think before he acts, You know, doesn't care about due process, doesn't care about his, his boss who's going to yell at him in a great scene later in the movie. Just I'm going to get the job done. If I have to shoot somebody to do it, I don't care if I'm going to have to bend the rules to get a, a criminal out of prison for 40 hours. I'm going to do it. And and those little touches, like the way he drives, it like accentuates all. It just like he's like a complete person, all yeah. there. It's all there. I do like that he also gets multiple times held up by other cops. You know, yes. who they're like he's constantly being, he's mistaken, constantly for being mistaken for a criminal, which is yes. charming. And also, you know, uh, we talked about Eddie Murphy a lot already, but like Eddie Murphy in this, his you know first big his first movie role, and like he actually acts, you know, in mm. this. Like he's not just doing Eddie Murphy, which I think. You know, quickly it kind of became something that was characteristic point. for him. Like he, he does like the, even like the signature laugh he does once. But he actually is playing a role here, I think. Like, uh, and I think you know, even though he is, he's like, extremely charming and uh, extremely charismatic. But I think he actually he fits in the movie. It does not become a, just an Eddie Murphy show. You know, that's a great point. And you know, it's interesting. The scene that's so famous from this movie, the one that always gets talked about is kind of the one scene that stands out as the opposite of that, where he pretends to be a cop. Yeah, he goes in into this bar to get information. And it's sort of his big show showcase scene because he gets to, like, sort of puff his chest out and act like a cop and basically play a character. It's almost like, you know, playing one of the clumps or something. He takes on this other role. And it, it was a huge, like, scene in the movie. It became so famous. It's iconic. But it almost you almost wonder if it was, like, the thing that, like, poison the well or something like though this is what they want this is what people really like they love the characters they love when i do that they love big so let's go bigger and it kind of just kept going up and up and up and you're i agree with you some of the best stuff in this movie is just him like cursing out nick nolte and not in a funny way just in like a exasperated i hate you so much i can't wait to go back to jail like i am taking pleasure in messing with you away yeah it's it's pretty great Yeah. yeah all right well let's talk for a few minutes i guess about streets fire although i have to say uh, I don't have a ton more to say about it. Like, I I thought it was okay. I, again, you mentioned the indulgence. I think that's a perfect word for it. But certainly not. And I like Walter Hill, and I've seen a lot of his other movies. This is not one of my favorite Walter Hill films. Well, it's funny. Like, you talk about stripped down and all of that. And yeah, this, this movie is, is not, not that stripped so down. much. You're right. Yeah. It, and it does, I mean, it does recall. Well, it's trying to marry that, though. Like, yeah. it has that side. It's very minimalist story of, like, a yeah, guy comes Western to town to rescue his ex hero. Yeah, yeah. Married with this, Diane Lane doing these long so, rock yeah, numbers. Yeah, it's like half, it's almost a musical. It's all kind of diegetic. I mean, there's a whole scene in the, like, in the middle where it's almost like a music video mm-hmm. takes place. But, um, it, it is like it. It is an interesting ex- experiment. It's kind of like uh, it's like if the Warriors went wrong, you know. The right. Warriors is already like a really interesting, crazy cult item. Yeah, and, then and this similarly is really like, stylized. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's set in a place, but it it seems somehow unreal. Unreal, yeah. And it's got these gangs that are kind of almost like the biker gang. It's is almost like science fiction. Science it's like fiction. a science yeah, fiction movie exactly. without actual science in there. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, you know, uh, maybe like we can talk briefly about what's maybe more interesting than the main characters in this is like uh like amy madigan who is basically she is in a role that was written for a guy they changed it minimally to accommodate her being female but like it is very weird like she is the gruff like the tough sidekick like you you think like this is a role for like a guy like a burly six foot two guy yeah and she's not 
that um i mean it's kind of interesting what they do it's an interesting idea but i don't know did you think it was a good performance i mean it seemed like such a put-on to me no like, it, it seemed, seemed so outsized it did seem it seemed weird it also just like she's like a returning soldier from the war when she says that you're like what <laughs> like how <laughs> the like, hair what? the hair wars yeah. where we battled to see who would wear the worst uh weird wigs yeah and it does this movie also features uh diane lane's new boyfriend is rick moranis which is one of the great romantic screen pairings yeah i have to say i was very surprised to see rick moranis in this movie playing against type for one of the few times on screen you know i feel like all rick moranis roles and not as a bad thing i love rick moranis are like kind of like of a piece you know and a certain kind of and here he's like he's like the oily dude from a sam fuller movie like the guy the fixer guy you know and he's constantly fast talking michael paray's character and well, I like your style, kid. You got a lot of gruff. You're tough. I like it. I'm going to pay you your money that you want. You can work for me some more sometime, maybe. You know, like, you're going, you're Rick Moranis. You're Louis <laughs> Tully. This is very out of character for you. Uh, I don't know if it, yeah. it really worked either. It's, it's, it is odd casting. It's interesting. I, I will say something that I did really like was just the way that the two kind of ex-lovers parted in this movie, which mm-hmm. was like, you know, really like having this be this kind of bombastic over the top movie. There's one scene where there's like a clip, like a kiss in the rain that is like, just like a kid. It's like a karaoke video. Um, <laughs> But, um, <laughs> that is the perfect description. Well done. But, you know, I, I think that, like, it, in this weird yeah. way, like, the two arrive. I mean, I don't, it's really, really a spoiler that, like, they don't, like, kind of live happily ever after. I, I, but they have, like, a, a parting of ways that's, like, weirdly emotionally mature. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and then, I think what's also interesting is that, you know, the setup is that she's been kidnapped. The sister calls him to come back and save her. And we sort of expect that to be the entire arc of the movie. And in the last frame, he saves her and kisses her. And that's the end. Yeah. And that's not what this movie is. And there's actually like a, an act after that story sort of resolves, at least the sort of will he save her or not is resolved. Yeah. And then there's sort of a what do we do now kind of act, which I did find kind of interesting. Yeah. And you're right. A little bit mature or at least different than what you expect. Yeah. And I, I like that about it. Okay. And, you know, one person we haven't talked about who I actually thought was good, although looking around, I guess, you know, people like the AV Club has this really wonderful primer about Walter Hill's films. They talk about all of his movies and they really kind of take this guy to task. I really liked Michael Pere in this movie. I found something kind of I liked him too. Charming. I they said was, he was really handsome. He, they said uh, this is the AV Club's primer on Walter Hill. Says it has some of the worst performances in Hill's entire oeuvre, particularly the Stallone-voiced Michael Pere as the mercenary and a miscast Amy Madigan as the tough tough gal psychic. And we agree, Madigan isn't fantastic. It's weird, yeah. I actually found Michael Pere kind of charming in I this role in a sort of gruff, lunky, lunkheaded yeah. sort of way. I mean, and like, I was like, why isn't why didn't this guy make more movies yeah, like Yeah, I wonder too. I looked him up. Yeah. I think, I mean, like, it's such a minimalist role. There's deliberately so little to it. You don't even know what he's been doing. Like, he returns to town and you're like, he's maybe been in a he's war. He's a mercenary <laughs> of some kind. Again, the wars, <laughs> yeah, the, the air wars. wars. We ran out of wars. Um, <laughs> like, But I thought he was very, really charming. I mean, like, it's a role that requires him to be like, to not emote that well, much. Well, he's the man yeah, with no name, exactly. you know? And but I thought he was, he did a good job. I mean, he's not Clint Eastwood, but no. I thought he was actually surprisingly effective, yeah. and I would have watched him in more roles like this. I And I did the same thing. I looked him up, and I said, okay, he was in that and this and that, but why hasn't he done more stuff? He's yeah. he's handsome. He's got yeah. a good look. He's 
he strikes the right pose in the duster and all that. He's got the good fight with Willem Dafoe at the end with, of the movie. Uh, sledgehammers or what whatever. are those? What are th- I, I like pickaxes. He, he hands one to Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe's like, yeah, okay. yeah, like, oh, we're gonna have a sledgehammer duel. That's in the middle of the street <laughs> yes. while everyone watches. Exactly. It's the only way to resolve the traditional this. way. We the only it. thing that was missing was like a ring of fire, so it could have been like, <laughs> here we are. On the streets of fire. And then they could have tapped it on the, the street and been like, come out and play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So of the two, I, I feel like 48 Hours, The Essential Viewing, Streets of Fire, The Interesting Curiosity. Yeah, definitely. And they are both available on Netflix. Next up is Behind the Eight Ball, in which we give you a rapid fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming, two that are expiring soon, and one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queue. We're actually only going to do half of our usual slate this time. Matt's going to take this one on because we are running very late and running very long. Yes, so, and we're uh, going to get kicked out of the studio. Yes, so, so we'll put some more up on uh, on Twitter. So look for it there. Or you could even fill yours out and we could just put it in the show notes that go up on filmspottingsvu.com. Sure. That would be, we could do that, right? Yeah. So if you want to find Allison's picks for this two weeks, you can go to filmspottingsvu.com, click on this episode, and we do this for every episode. We have all the links to all the movies we talk about, and we'll just have Allison's there. So I'm going to do mine, though, on the show, and I'm, I'm, I'm ready, Allison. Okay, three new picks. All right, let's start with Goldfinger from 1964, directed by Guy Hamilton, one of a bunch of James Bond movies that just popped up on Netflix. This is either the best or the second best James Bond movie of all time after From Russia With Love. I vacillate. I used to be a Goldfinger man. Now I'm more of a From Russia With Love man, but still a classic with the classic villain, the classic gold-painted woman, the classic uh, opening credits. It's a classic. It's a James Bond classic if you've never seen it and absolutely worth watching. That's Goldfinger. Uh, also available now on Netflix from 1972 and directed by Herbert Ross, but written by and starring Woody Allen. Play it again, Sam. It's one of his earliest works. This was actually a play that he did and starred in on Broadway. I'm going to stop talking like that. Uh, so he didn't direct the movie Play It Again, Sam, even though he stars in it and uh, wrote it. He plays a, a guy who's he's, he, play, he plays Woody Allen. And uh, But in this one, the twist is that the ghost of Humphrey Bogart basically appears before him and counsels him. That's where the Play It Again, Sam part comes in. He's sort of obsessed with Casablanca and with Humphrey Bogart. And he becomes his spiritual advisor in the ways of love. It is a, a charming Woody Allen movie. Kind of an obscure one because he didn't direct it. Worth seeing. Play it again, Sam. And finally, the movie I will be watching this week, which maybe should be a theme on Behind the Eight Ball. What will you be watching this week? I will be watching a movie I've never seen by John Ford from 1939, Young Mr. Lincoln. Now, now, now is the time, Allison, to finally catch up with this movie. I've been dying to see it. It's a, a classic. That's Young Mr. Lincoln. 1939, John Ford, available on Netflix. Okay, two expiring films. Just by sheer happenstance, we had a nice little connection here. One of Walter Hill's other movies is expiring from Netflix on April 15th, and it's the 1981 film Southern Comfort, which I had actually never seen until just recently when I saw this movie projected in 35mm at the 92nd Street Y Tribeca which is sadly uh, going to be going away soon, which is actually very depressing to me. Yeah. Uh, Walter Hill was in attendance. He did an amazing hour-long Q&A afterwards. This movie is fantastic. Another stripped-down, lean action movie with Powers Booth and an amazing cast of dudes. They're lost in the bayous around Cajuns. Louisiana, and they're chased by angry Cajuns. Have you seen Southern Comfort? I have not, but I've read a lot about oh, it. Oh, my God. This movie is fantastic. It yeah. might be one of the two or three best Walter Hill ever did. It's expiring on April 15th. Make sure you watch it before it vanishes. And also expiring on April 15th 
a little cult classic named Donnie Darko from 2001 and directed by a gentleman by the name of Richard Kelly, a classic. Another one that I, I, this one I suspect a lot of people have seen if you're listening to this, but if you haven't, now's the time to see it. One worthy of its cult, at least in the non-director's cut version when it was more enigmatic and you had agreed, to sort of piece agreed. it together. When Richard Kelly went back in and made the director's cut, I think he kind of killed the mystique, so to speak. But I'm not sure which version is available right now. If it is the non-director's cut, definitely make sure to watch it before it expires on April 15th. Okay, and one from your queue. You gave me number 22, which was actually a movie I've talked about on the show before, so we're going to do number 23, which is Blythe Spirit from 1945, directed by David Lean, the great director. Uh, The description from Netflix says, based on the Noel Coward play, this classic film follows the frustrations of a novelist, Charles Condamine, who seeks marital bliss with his second wife, Ruth, but finds himself at odds with the ghost of his mischievous first wife, Elvira, (laughs) played by Kay Hamilton. Weary of Elvira's interference, Ruth asks a medium to make the ghost leave, but it is Charles who achieves the most unusual solution. Never seen it. David Lean, Noel Coward. There you go. Blythe Spirit, available on Netflix. Okay, so here are your listeners' choice options for the next episode. You can vote on which film we will review next. Yeah, we've got some deep cuts this time. Speaking of, we used that phrase before. This is like the deep cut of the deep cuts. <laughs> I don't know what's going to win this time. We we tried to make it balanced because we had right. some kind of indier ones that we thought would be good. So we didn't want to like weigh it down with like having a giant with like to the wonder. Yeah. Like if we picked that, <laughs> that would win. So we wanted to try to give it a fair, some of these little movies a a fair chance. So the first option is a very little movie with a very big title. It's called Chopitoulas, T-C-H-O-U-P-I-T-O-U-L-A-S, something like that. Um, This is a, we've both already seen this one, right? Mm -hmm, But we we would love to talk about it, see it again, talk about it, really bring this movie to your attention. It is worth seeing. It's going to be available on iTunes starting on April 16th. It's a sort of hybrid fiction documentary movie by these two guys named Bill and Turner Ross. They're brothers, and they are very talented filmmakers. Their previous movie, which had another unusual title, 45365, which is a zip code. It's the zip code of the town they grew up in, I believe. And they made a a documentary about the residents of their hometown, which is one of the most beautiful documentaries I've seen. It's incredible. It is an, an amazing movie. Uh, and uh, I got to talk to them about it at Ebert Fest, actually. Speaking of Ebert, on, on stage, I did the part of the Q&A for that, and that it is an amazing movie. Um, that's worth seeing. This is their new movie. It's sort of a documentary, sort of a fictional movie about these three kids, these three brothers, who are sort of wandering through New Orleans. And I think they're really brothers, and who knows how much of it was, you know, just filming their reactions and how much of it is scripted, but it is a, a beautiful movie, and it is coming out on iTunes on april 16th even if we don't talk about it i really urge you to check it out all right our next pick is an animated film it is called it's such a beautiful day it's directed by don hertzfeld who's been a long favorite of mine he's an indie animator kind of famous for doing these very sometimes very dark and sometimes very funny uh hand-drawn films with stick figures uh, and It's Such a Beautiful Day is made up of uh, three films. It's cut together from three short films that he'd made over the years. Uh, it kind of becomes a feature and ended up on a surprising amount of best of lists last year for a film that I think got like a week long, one week long theatrical release in New York. It is. It, it suddenly like caught like a groundswell of like Twitter support. People yeah. started talking about it on Twitter, kind of like the way that Girl Walk All Day was. People started like raving about it, and and then it kind of it, got it, last minute uh, attention. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And I never got a chance to catch up with it. Yeah, and I, you know, I did see this, and I actually hosted a Q and A with him uh, after oh, he finished the last, uh, the last part of this trilogy, mm-hmm. um, and. 
Uh, it's fantastic. It's a, it's a story about a guy who is, uh, has a potentially like fatal brain disease and he's a stick figure. Um, it is like the most funny and sad stick figure story ever. It's uh, fantastic. Um, so, uh, that is available on Vimeo. Vimeo is now allowing people to offer their stuff up for download and for rental. So it's available for a $2 rental or I think $6 digital download, really not worth it. Price. It's, uh, it's really worth it. Even again, if this does not win, it is still very much worth checking out. That is, it's such a beautiful day by Don Hertzfeld. It's on Vimeo. Okay, our last pick is a little bit bigger. And it was kind of an under-the-radar film, which I actually haven't watched yet either. Um, and wanted to see, certainly, uh, uh, for the pedigree, if nothing else. And it's called Promised Land. This came out at the end of last year, 2012, directed by Gus Van Zandt, a director I love, with a fantastic cast that includes Matt Damon, John Krasinski, Francis McDormand, and Hal Holbrook. The screenplay was written by Damon and Krasinski, actually, which is interesting, and based on a story by Dave Eggers. And the, the plot description I have here says it follows two corporate salespeople who visit a rural town in an attempt to buy drilling rights for the local residents, and it's about fracking, but it's supposedly it's not that heavy-handed. And it's more about the, the characters and about sort of the, the quality of this small town in 2012 America. Um, it didn't get the best reviews, um, but it had its supporters. It's, it just kind of got buried at the end of the year. Yeah, you know? it was a really tough time to come out if you're like not one of the giant right. movies that happened. Yeah, and if you don't like year. nail it, if you're not a killer movie, it's just it's tough at that time of year. So this could be a uh, you know it could be a diamond in the rough. It could be a hidden gem. I w- I would be very excited to see this one as well. This is a tough pick. I don't know what I would vote for. Yeah, but they're all good, and I would I would be happy to watch any of them. So. I don't know. What are they going to choose? We're going to have to wait and find out. So which of these movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Uh, you can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, April 15th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will uh, come out around Tuesday, April 23rd. FilmSpottingSVU is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on this show. And as we mentioned before, we're going to have Allison's Behind the Eight Ball picks up there this time as well. The FilmSpottingSVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Allison on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. It's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.